0: Of salvation and that's not right who would want to live in fear like that and i don't know if you guys can see that but i invite you guys to take your phone out and take a picture of that and you have my word unless the rapture comes or i die tomorrow we're going to preach through every one of those points while we're here in verse john those are 10 tests of assurance that i found in first john as i went through cover to cover and i worked that thing back and forth that i found that we can have assurance of our salvation so it's right there take a picture of it and know it we're going to go through it uh, so the test that we've seen so far uh, is, is the first one to have a right doctrine of the true Christ and to have an honest view of sin which is number two and the third test that we come to tonight is obedience to what God commands so by way of reminder uh, John's battling false teachers who are disrupting the church in Asia Minor with their absurd views of Christian living remember some of these heretics claim that Christians can live however they want to that sin has no effect on them or their relationship with God you know, this is very similar to a teaching in modern in the in modern evangelical movement today <clears throat> that theologians call it's a big word antinomianism, and what that is is that oh we gotta wait for, for Ron, he's like me with the cell phones. Okay, how do you make this work? <laughs> uh, and what this big word is, he'll get to it when he gets there. Uh, theologians call it antinomianism and what that is is that these false teachers believe that they're released from following in obedience to the law and to the commands of god because they have been freed by his grace so they're the reason for the hypothetical question that the apostle paul raises in romans 6 1 when he writes shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound well we know the answer to that and the answer is what absolutely not we don't sin so that grace may abound that makes no sense uh, antinomianism in the early church and in today's time stands in opposition to the law and they deny that sanctification is uh, the necessary fruit of justification so in other words they deny the true mark of the born again believer is the fruit of holy living and adherence to God's commands right if we're Christians we're going to walk like Christians right that, what's that old saying it looks like a duck it talks like a duck it walks like a duck it must be a duck right uh, it, You people should be able to see that you're a Christian from a mile away So I want you to listen to what John MacArthur writes on antinomianism. Whereas legalism undermines the gospel by insisting that we must add our obedience to Christ's work in order to be justified, antinomianism perverts the gospel by subtracting from the efficacy of Christ's work, denying that those who receive Christ as Savior must also submit to him as Lord. So these false teachers refuse to stand against sin and they call anyone who preaches holiness and sanctification, they call them legalistic, right? We know some people like that today who want to live like the devil. And if we were to say anything about the life that they lived, they would say that we were being legalistic, that we'd shaken our finger at them, right? Um, and as we go through this, uh, MacArthur actually calls uh, the antinomianism faith dead. He calls it demonic and he calls it useless sharp words it's it's harsh but it's so true as we go through this section of scripture i want you to imagine a road and on each side of the road there's a ditch right and i'm not talking like a highway i come from old country back roads right some old gravel roads um and each side there's a ditch right well our our whole goal and purpose is to stay right in the middle you know what i'm saying we don't want to get in the ditch you've been in a ditch on an old country back road it's hard to get out of right you might have to call somebody chris come bail me out come get me out Well, on on one side of this road is the ditch called legalism, okay? And then on the other side of the road in this ditch is called antinomianism. And legalism adds weight to the back of the Christians, right? It's like that backpack analogy. They just keep putting rocks in there. It's what the Pharisees were. They were legalistic. They had no true relationship with God. Um, they, they add these words or they add these laws and certain rules and things that are not biblical. You can't find them in Scripture. They add weights onto the back of the Christians. And they might even say things like this that in order to be saved, you have to keep all ten commandments, right? A legalistic teacher says that you must believe, <clears throat> in order to be saved, you must believe in Christ and keep the seven sacraments, like the Roman Catholic Church teaches. Um, That's legalism. They also say some some denominations teach that women must have a hair of a certain length, that it has to be braided and they have to wear a dress. That's legalism. Um, And men better be using a King James Version Bible and wearing a suit every Sunday or you stand in error. That's legalism, things like that. It's not bad that I stand up here and I wear a suit as I try to set a standard and I try to show my reverence to God, but I don't impose it on anybody else, right? As in saying the only way you're going to be holy is if you wear a suit and preach out of the certain Bible. And on the other side of the ditch, on the other side of the road is the ditch of antinomianism that we talked about before. And I won't repeat it. But in that ditch, I want you to know this, that all restraint is removed and lawlessness begins to creep into their life. (coughs) My goal tonight is to show you guys how to drive. I want to teach you guys how to drive. Daryl, you miss driving, don't you? Jump in the car, man. We're going for a ride, Bubba. I'm going to let you drive, okay? Uh, I want to teach you guys how to keep the car of justification traveling down the middle of the road, free from the ditches that will only wreck us and cause us harm. So tonight, as we hear the words of the Apostle Paul echo throughout the corridor of history through the Word of God, as he confronts these issues head on, pay attention to these things. Uh, my prayer is that we will heed to the great commandment and the great commission laid out to us by the Lord Jesus Christ as his commands speak to us and show us how to live as Christians here on earth. So join me now, if you will, in the reading of God's Word. We'll be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3-6. through 6. Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments he who says i know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him but whoever keeps his word truly the love of god is perfected in him by this we know that we are in him he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked let's pray lord we we're grateful we're grateful to be here in this church as my brother had talked about Um, Our other brothers and sisters who are in other countries that are being persecuted for this very precious faith that we share. I pray, God, that we would have faith and an attitude like those Christian brothers and sisters over there. Uh, We have it made in the shade here. We're lazy Christians at times, Lord. And I pray that you'd give us an attitude like them. That we would go uh, through anything and go anywhere just to have one page of the Bible. To be able to meet in a cave or in a back room hidden away, knowing that if they catch us we're going to prison for years and we might even be tortured. God, I pray for faith like that in this place tonight. I pray, God, that you would uh, make us Christians like that. Help us, Lord, through the teaching of your word to obey your commandments in such a way that we act just like those men and women across seas. And I pray, God, for your supernatural protection over them. Keep them safe. And Lord, we know this, that if they go down as a martyr's death, they have a special place in heaven. What a beautiful death it would be. So Lord, we ask uh, for your Holy Spirit to work tonight. And and through my words, God, and, and would you soften the hearts of those hearers um, that are out here in this congregation tonight to receive your word, to receive exhortation, to receive encouragement. And Lord, may it just fall easy on their ears, but may it convict their hearts. Would you mend them back together afterwards? It's in Christ's name, amen. So this brings us to our first point, which is... Uh, the test. And next week, we're actually going to dive into this first, the commandments that we'll talk about. We'll dive into it a little bit deeper. Uh, But this brings us to our test here. And and, and it goes, starts off like this. Now, by this, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. So I said a couple weeks ago, John paints, paints in black and white. Why should I paint in shades of gray? Uh, It's so simple, really, that a child can understand these two verses, and they can literally be read like this. If you keep his commandments, you're in. If you don't keep his commandments, you're out. And what does Scripture say? It says that we shall know a tree by its fruit. Uh, We don't have to know the Greek, the original language, to figure this one out. It's plain as day. Anybody who says that they know Jesus, but their life isn't marked by obedience to what he says, well, they're a liar. We can't say we're a child of God and live like the devil, guys. That's what I'm saying. Will we do it perfectly? No, we'll, and I'll point to that here in a minute. Uh, I don't want to lose you guys just yet, though. And I know it's harsh, I, but, but I want you to know it's so true. If anyone says that they have a Savior named Jesus, yet fail to submit to him as Lord, they're self-deceived, okay? And the truth is not in them. So many people, uh, So many people want the benefits of Jesus, yet they don't want to pay the price of following him. For what does he say? If anybody wants to be my disciple, they must pick up their cross and follow me, right? What did Jesus do on the cross? He died, right? He gave his life as a sacrifice. He's saying, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to be willing to go the same route. You've got to be willing to die to yourself, to make a sacrifice. So, so, so many people today want to be saved from an e- eternal hell, but they're unwilling to live under the subjection to Jesus' lordship. They can't stand the thought of being a slave to God. Their pride gets in the way. And I've heard many testimonies of people say this, that I had to make Jesus Lord of my life. Do you hear how nutty that sounds? I had to make Jesus Lord of my life. And I understand what they're saying. I'll err on the side of grace on that, but I want to clean that up just a little bit. Okay, we can never make Jesus Lord. It's not our job. Only God the Father has the power to make Jesus Lord, and he has already. All authority has been given to him on heaven and on earth. Uh, and I said and I said all that to say this: that at salvation, when we receive Christ as our Savior, we automatically are under his lordship we cannot receive him as Savior and not submit to him as Lord. It doesn't work. We can't take just half of Jesus, right? That's his title, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? We can't just say, well, I just want the Savior Jesus Christ. I don't want you to be my Lord. It doesn't work that way. We must receive both titles of Lord and Savior. We don't get one without the other. And it brings us to our next point, which is perfected love. In verse 5, follow with me as we move through this rather fast, but... Whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. And by this, we know that we are in him. So in 1 John, we see this awesome game of tennis being played, right? Is there any tennis players out here? Anybody like to play tennis? Um, Anybody like to maybe play ping pong? I heard Daryl's like force gum. No, you do? I heard you're cold with it, man. Uh, So he told me when I carried this ping pong table into the back of my truck and put it back there, he said, you don't want to catch me on that table. I'm like, hold up, Daryl. You know what I mean? (laughs) I didn't know it was like that. But anyways, it's a game of back and forth, back and forth uh, between the one who says and the one who does. And you'll read it as you read it for yourself. You'll see the one who says and the one who does. The one who says and the one who walks. The one who says and the one who keeps. Okay, It's a back and forth. And the one who says is a big talk. He's the guy in church that says, uh, I, I'm this saved. I'm this, this much of a sold-out believer in Jesus Christ. I'm this guy. I walk this way. I do these certain things. I give to the poor. I give to the needy. Um, and they boast it out. And they give just like this with their phone. And they're handing it out like that. So that means that I'm saved. <clears throat> um, while the one who... who uh, and, the, and the one who's, who does is the genuine believer and he's living out his conversion. And so what we see here in transition from chapter four or from verse four to verse five is this, that verse four says that the one who says I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, while verse five says, but whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. So what does that mean to keep his word? Uh, So the Greek word uh, used here for keep, that word keep is, and I'm probably gonna butcher it, but it's tereo. And it means to guard from loss or from, uh, from injury, to keep your eye upon. It means to, to serve or to watch. It's more than just, I'm keeping this bottle in my hand. You're keeping your eye on it. You're focused, focused on it. You're guarding it. Um, it's with everything that you have in you. It's more than just doing the right things. Um, <clears throat> it's a life lived with the word of God fixed forever in the front of your minds. So Deuteronomy chapter 11 actually gives us a brilliant example of this attitude of keeping God's word. So it's up there on the screen. Follow with me as I read. Therefore, you shall lay these words of mine in your heart and in your soul and bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, speaking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk uh, by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So it's always keeping it there in front of you. Keeping his word is treasuring the very word of God in our hearts. It's knowing that there's nothing more valuable in the entire world than that of the holy scriptures handed down to us by God himself. We did a preaching class here earlier, and the guy broke down that word uh, in Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, that the word of God is breathed out by God. Okay, and that means that it comes from his innermost being. It's his breath. It's his words. It's been handed down by God himself. So to keep his word is to always keep it in sight. It's to always keep it near to us for the purpose of guiding us. It's to meditate on it day and night, guys. It's, it's what Psalm uh, 119, 105 says, to let your word be a, a, a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's, that's uh, keeping his word. So to keep his word is to love it so much that you instruct your children by it and anybody else who will listen in the ways of God. To love, your, to love his word is to share his word. To keep keep his word is to share his word. And to keep his word is to fill the atmosphere of your home, of your coming, and of your going with the sweet conversation of Jesus Christ revealed in the scriptures. To keep his word is to guard his word with all your life, to live and to die by it. To know that this is the sweetest, best, most thing in my entire life. If I could have nothing else in this world, but I could have this, I'd be happy. And if you would limit me down to one chapter of this entire book, I would take Romans chapter 8. And I would be happy and be sufficient for my entire life. Charles Spurgeon said this, that the Bible that is falling apart belongs to a man whose life is not. The condition of a Bible will determine the condition of a life. Okay, it's guaranteed. A dusty Bible equals a dusty life. But a Bible that's well used is a life that's well used by God. That's why when I get a new Bible, I almost want to throw it down on the ground and stamp on it. You know what I mean? I want to wear it down a little bit, drag it across the concrete. Like, I almost like, man, my pages ain't even wrinkled up. Give me a highlighter, you know? But it's in this that we find, real, uh, real talk, it's in this that we find that the love of God is perfected in our lives, okay? And we'll have an uncontrollable desire to devour God's Word and to discover what it is that He commands us to do and what He commands us to be. That's the mark of being saved. You want to know more about God? I'm sorry, but I have a hard time believing it from people who say that they're saved and they don't even care about reading their Bible. I'm sorry, I'm just a fruit inspector. But as you keep His word, <laughs> sorry, I, I'm not trying to make you laugh, man. That was serious. Uh, as we uh, as we keep His word, our love for Him only, only as we keep His word, our love for Him only grows deeper. Look, some ministries are an inch deep and a mile wide, okay? And some ministries are a mile deep and an inch wide. <clears throat> Guys, we want to be a mile wide and a mile deep, okay? We want to know more about God so that therefore it would motivate us to get out there into the community, to, uh, uh, to spread the gospel, to, to make disciples, to bring them into church. <clears throat> the ministry of this pulpit can only be as deep as my relationship is with the Lord, Okay? And it's in these moments of perfect, fearless love that we realize that the whole world were taken from me and all I had was his word, I'd be okay. That Jesus is in fact enough and I need nothing else. Uh, I went, we went through a miscarriage a while back and there was this one particular song, man, that I could hang my hat on. I still hang on to it today. It's by Elias Drummer and it's called uh, Jesus is Enough. It's called Enough. And it's just over and over again, he's saying, Jesus, you are enough. Jesus, you are enough for me. And that's it. Um, It's not the baby that we have now, but it was the baby that we had before. Uh, And that was the thing, you could take everything from me, Lord. As long as I got you, you're enough. Your word's enough. You are enough for me. The fact is that I need Jesus and nothing else, honestly. And, and John Calvin said this, and some of you guys have a bad rap of John Calvin, but I want you to know this, that he loves you, okay? And he is a great theologian. Some people have him very wrong. Uh, but he said this, that I gave up all for Christ, and what have I found? I found everything in Christ. Amen. Can you guys say that today? I gave up everything for Christ, and what have I found? Everything in Christ. I gave up my my old family, my mom and my dad and my brothers and my sisters and my best friend. And what did I find? Brothers and sisters and grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles in the body of, uh, of Christ in my local church. I found everything I ever needed in Christ. But I don't want you to check out on me here, guys. I have some encouragement for you. Because I know that it seems like as we, as we read this book, it seems to be a little bit more convicting. First uh, John, first John, at least, as we read his, uh, his book, it seems to be a little bit more convicting than it is assuring in some points. We might read this, and on a bad day, we're like, I'm out. I'm not in it. You know what I mean? You might read it some days, and you're like, "Woo, I'm doing really good, but she ain't. You know what I'm saying? But that's, that's not the attitude to have. Okay. Um, the direct black and white language of John really makes us feel guilty sometimes but that's not a bad thing. But I want you to remember who he's battling against, okay? We got to always keep the context in play as we read the Bible or else we'll end up in left field with a doctrine that ain't true, okay? The, the 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 context is that he's battling false teachers who say that they're saved and they're not. And I want you to keep that in mind and also keep in mind that the very conviction of not living in perfect obedience is a sign or perfect obedience to God is a sign of the Holy Spirit inside of you. The conviction, it's a good thing. You know, if somebody were to come to me and say, man, I've got this sin in my life and I just don't think I'm saved, Pastor. I would say, well, you just passed the acid test. You know what I'm saying? You are convicted of your sin. Thank you, Lord. Um, Remember that John writes this, though, as well. That anyone who says that they have no sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. Okay, So he's not ever preaching perfect, perfect obedience okay, or, or perfectionism or anything like that. He's saying he acknowledges that we're all going to sin, but what do we do with that sin? We confess that sin, right? And, then wh- and what's it say? He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. And he's referring uh, to the false convert who lives like the devil, and yet he refuses to acknowledge his own sin. You ever meet somebody who will refuse to acknowledge that they're a sinner? Like, they live a good life, right? Because they give to this charity and they do these good things, right? Quote, unquote. And they, they're willing, unwilling to admit that the girlfriend that they have that is not their wife is not a bad thing. Because they've justified in their own minds that one day he's going to marry her anyways, right? Or they refuse to admit that they, they're a sinner whatsoever. <clears throat> they would be shocked to believe that their life was bad at all. And the very conviction that, that, that we have for not sharing the gospel... Somewhere we should have or for holding bitterness in our heart towards someone else is actually proof that we're saved. I said that already. This leads us to our next point, which is our obedient example. In verse 6, he says this. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. So Jesus Christ lived a perfect, sinless life, obedient to the Father, right? Every step of the way, uh, he was found without blemish, without spot, without defect. He was pure. Pure as pure gets, Okay. <clears throat> and unlike any other man ever could or ever did, Jesus was perfect. We can't we can't walk the same way he did, perfectly like that. So how on earth are we ever supposed to walk just as he walked? So is this section of scripture referring to uh, to perfect to tell us to live perfectly sinless? And absolutely not, because the Word of God is perfect, and it can never err against itself. It's not. Uh, it's infallible. It, it's impeccable. It's perfect. It can never contradict itself. Um, uh, if this passage was designed to teach sinless perfectionism, then we might as well throw the rest of the scriptures out that teach that there's no one righteous. No, not one that none seek after God, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? So don't, don't take this one passage of scripture, uh, that we should walk as Jesus walked and, and interpret the entire Bible, but rather take the entire Bible, and interpret that one passage of scripture. That's how you read the Bible. That's how you correctly interpret these things. So this passage, uh, if this passage was designed to teach sinless perfectionism, like I said, we might as well throw out the rest of the scriptures um, and, and throw out 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and, and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, right? Did you guys forget what we went through already in 1 John chapter 1? And, and it doesn't make sense to interpret the text this way, or interpret the book of 1 John this way, because saying that we must live a perfect life, we know that we can't, right? It's not possible. We know that John would never teach this heretical teaching or teach a contradiction here. He's teaching that Jesus Christ was obedient. And that's what he's teaching. He's teaching obedience. Then that that Jesus Christ, the one that we're proclaiming, is the master of obedience himself. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous, who just before his crucifixion, sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane as he prayed this. Father, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That's the obedience that Jesus is calling us to live in. That John's saying we should walk as is in obedience to God. And Jesus is our obedient example in how we, as Christians, keep his commandments. How we keep his word and how we walk. He set the pace for us. We follow in his footsteps. And all that's great, but what exactly are the commandments of Jesus Christ? I say this uh, as we look at Chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 3, and we say, By this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Well, it's kind of vague, right? Like, what commandments are they? Are they the Ten Commandments? What are the commandments that he's telling us to live, telling us to walk in? So follow with me as we look at the great commandments summed up by Jesus here. Matthew 22, <clears throat> verse 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. So as we break this commandment down, we actually find that the entirety of the Old Testament hangs on these two categories, the absolute love for God and the absolute love for others. This is the teaching of the Ten Commandments. Because as if we were to lay them out, the Ten Commandments, and we'll, we'll probably look at that maybe next week or something. Uh, if we were to lay out all ten of them, you'd see that the first four focus on loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. While the last six commandments focuses on loving others as we would love ourselves, right? And that's why Jesus said that... Uh, it, Uh, the commandments hang on all the law and prophets hang on these two things that he had said these two great commandments so the prophets in the Old Testament cried out for Israel to return to their first love who is God that was their heart cry and they also preached against the injustice of humanity within their nation the heart cry of the prophets was the great commandment their heart cry was to love God love people and this is also the heart cry of Jesus right he was devoted to show the Jews what true love really looked like That real love for God was more than a ritual and a display. It was more than wearing phylacteries, sitting in the best places, praying the loudest, giving the most money. And it was more than ceremonial cleansing. That real love for God is that of which we spoke about earlier. The utmost desire for obedience to his commandments, right? The utmost desire to keep his word. It's real love for God. That we would serve him with everything that we got. Love, guys, is a verb. It requires action it's not something that we fall into if you could fall into something you could fall out of it's what voddie Bachman said however it's a lifestyle we live a life of love to god and to others jesus demonstrated the most daring act for lo- uh, of love for us that he laid down his life for us right because what scripture says is says that greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends the most powerful display of love in all of eternity was displayed on the cross of Christ. Amen. It was, it was a beautiful demonstration of love. Because what's the scripture say here in Romans 5.8? God demonstrates his own love for us. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And also in John 3.16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For those of you who have children, could you imagine giving your child up for the sake of somebody else? Would you do that? We don't know love like that, do we? There's no greater display of love uh, for God and for others than that of the life of Christ. He loved the... And I heard Matt McKenzie say this the other day, so I'm going to steal it, okay? It was free, so it'll be free for you too. He loved the Father and he loved us to death. When we say, I love you to death, man, we don't mean it like Jesus did. And Jesus calls us to live in the same way, the same obedience, the same love. He calls us to love God with every ounce of our being to keep our hearts, our minds, and our souls fixed on him. And through that love that we have for God, we'll be able to turn around and love others as well. And be able to love them to death. In First John four nineteen, it says this, that we love Him because He first loved us. And loving others as we love ourselves speaks to the golden rule. Does anybody know what the golden rule is? Do unto others as you would have them do to you. It tells us, uh, as Christians, we know the truth. It doesn't tell us that, but as Christians, we know the truth. The truth has set us free, and we know that there's nothing sweeter than freedom by God's grace and His mercy. And as Christians, to love others is to share the gospel with the world and to make disciples. And this leads me to my last and my final point, the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18-20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority... Has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. Amen. Even to the end of the age. Amen. So to walk as Jesus walked is to live life on mission. Okay, And I want you guys to know this, that the last three years of Jesus' life was spent making disciples. There's a book called Jesus, Disciple Maker by Bill Hull. It's very good. You should check it out. Um, He invested and he poured into countless amounts of people, correct? Um, Yet there was an inner group that he had. Anybody know how many it was? He had 12. And inside of that 12, he had another inner group of three. But he he took these 12 men and he had had intentionally chose to walk alongside of them. In fact, he says this that you did not choose me, but I chose you for the purpose of carrying on his mission on earth after his ascent to the right hand of the Father. So, what he was doing was he was replacing himself uh, in the life of these men to carry on the gospel ministry after he left. And he would empower them through the Holy Spirit. He would not leave them as orphans, as the word says. <clears throat> he taught these apostles doctrine, he trained them in ministry, and he gave his life to making these men into disciples who would multiply. Excuse me here, guys, I'm sorry. I hate the sound of that water going down when you're on a microphone. It's disgusting. And I know my wife just cringes. She's got a no problem with mouth noises. So, yeah. <clears throat> so I want you to look around, you guys. Okay? Look to the right and look to the left of you. What do you see? You see men. You see women sitting beside you. And I want you to know this, that approximately 2,000 years later, we're all here today. Because those that Jesus made disciples continue to meet in an upper room. Even after the ascent of Jesus, they continued in the commandments of Christ to love God, to love people, and to make disciples, right? And what began with about 120 men in an upper room, or men and women in an upper room, has now increased to roughly 2.3 billion alive in the world today that claim Christianity. Amen, right? That's not counting men and women throughout the centuries who gave their lives to walk as Christ had walked. We're here today because of the great commandment and the great commission. We're here today because God chose to demonstrate his love and advance his kingdom through the preaching and the uh, evangelism of the gospel. And we're here today because faithful men and women continue to fight the good fight of faith and make disciples who multiply. We're here today because it's a baton race. Have you guys ever seen a a, a relay race on, on TV for the Olympics or anything like that? If you don't pass the baton, you lose, right? You can't run the whole race by yourself. The example of the Paul and Timothy relationship. Uh, Timothy was like a son to Paul. And and Paul was like a father to Timothy in the faith. And what the idea was, was that he was passing along this baton of faith. So that Timothy could go on ahead and run ahead of him. Because Paul was soon going to perish. Paul was soon going to die and go to heaven, okay? His life was going to be no more. He could do no more gospel ministry. You know what? One thing we're not going to do when we get to heaven is? We can't win souls. You know what I'm saying? So we better do as much of it down here as we can we can't do any more evangelism or discipleship building while we're in heaven. It's over. All we're going to get is here. So we must pass the baton of faith and discipleship along to the next person in line. Because look, one day we're not going to be here no more. Some of us sooner than others. I'm not taking a shot. <laughs> <laughs> and and we need to pass that baton on to the next generation so that they can run this race. And so that that number of Christians can, t- can continue to grow. We're here today because of men like John Calvin who sent myriads of missionaries back to the hostile France to share the gospel with a violent nation. And we're here today because of women like Lottie Moon. Some of you may have never heard of her, but she was a Southern Baptist missionary who spent nearly 40 years in China evangelizing and making disciples. She often went without food, without supplies, because she shared them with those around her that were in need. <clears throat> and at age 72, she weighed only 50 pounds when she died because she was dedicated to the great commandment. Into the Great Commission. She loved not the world, but she loved Jesus. And that's the obedience uh, that, that we should be seeking after. And as we abide in Jesus, just as a branch abides in the vine, we'll come to realize that we can do nothing apart from him. We will walk in a manner worthy of our calling. We'll be obedient and sensitive to God's commandments. We'll live a life obedient to God uh, in, in prayer and study, evangelism, discipleship, and love. And we'll be obedient. To confess sin and confess our shortcomings to his perfect standard. Because Jesus walked in obedience out of love to the Father and to us. So we ought to walk the same, okay? It's not a tall order. It's one step in front of the other. That's how you walk, right? One step in front of the other. When you fall down, confess your sins. Get right before the Lord. Look at first John one nine. Look at first John chapter two, verse two, and know that we have an advocate. Before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. My challenge tonight is this. Are you living out the great commandment? Are you loving God with, all, with every ounce of your being the best that you can? Are you loving others as much as you love yourself? Think about how much we love ourselves, guys. Are we loving others that same way? I don't think not. Sometimes we fall short there. Are we willing to go the extra mile for those in need and forgive those who have crushed you? Are you willing to forgive those who have hurt you in your past? Are you willing to forgive um, the mom who walked away from you and chose a different lifestyle? Are you willing to forgive the father who who ran out on you your whole entire life? Are you willing to forgive the brother who who took from you or or whoever that done something wrong to you? Are you willing to forgive because you love the father that much? Because you love God that much? And so in turn, you're willing to love and forgive others. Are you willing to go that far? Because that's that's a commandment of Christ. Seventy times seven. Daryl talked about this a little bit today during uh, Bible Fellowship. It's cool how it all mingles together here. Are you living out the Great Commission? Are you making disciples who multiply? Are you passing the baton in this relay race that I had talked about before? Or are you sitting stagnant? Because I want you guys to know this, that if you're not moving forwards, you're moving backwards. You can't sit still. You can't sit still. You can't coast downhill, okay? Because what are you doing? You're going downhill. You're not going up. We can't sit stagnant. And I encourage you guys tonight, though, uh, to be the salt and be the light of the earth. Walk as Christ walked. Love God. Love people. Make disciples who multiply. And guys, as, as an early church plan as we are, we've been open for about a month and a half or so. Uh, it's amazing to see that we have this many people here. And I'm thankful for Freeway Ministries. We couldn't do it without you guys, you know. Uh, this place would nowhere be near where we're at now without, without all the hands and feet that have went into this. But I also want you guys to know this, that we can't, like I said, we can't do this uh, without you guys. The church will not grow unless you take to the streets of the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, guys. Okay. Um, Rick and I have the task of encouraging, discipling, and exhorting you all to go out and live as missionaries here in Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, and simply, shepherds don't make sheep. Okay, Sheep make sheep. You guys make sheep. Uh, it's more than just evangelism. Go out and make disciples is what he says. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Where do we baptize them at? We baptize them here. Where do we, How do we disciple people? We engage them. We read the Bible with them. We walk through life together with them. How can we do that better than being here at a local church? We can't do this without you guys. So I, I beg you guys, please, I, I, I plead with you. Don't leave here today and think that we have this all taken care of because we don't. We need your help. A healthy church works together. A healthy church walks out and they share the gospel with the nations. You have a calling to take this to your neighborhood, guys. You don't have to be ordained. Um, You don't have to be uh, sent out by the IMB or the North American Mission Board or anything like that. But you have a calling to take this to your neighborhood, to your workplace, and to wherever else that you go, okay? Be a walking Bible. And as you get in your car and you exit this place, once you pass these gates out here, I want you to know that your mission field starts there, okay? I want to put a big old sign on those gates that says your mission field starts now. It starts as soon as you walk out these gates. So go and make disciples and bring them back into the local church. <clears throat> and in closing, guys, I, I don't know if there's anybody in here who does not know the Lord, but I know this much that I would not be doing my service as a pastor or as a preacher if I did not present the gospel. And I want you guys to know this, that uh, we was born sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God, okay? You don't have to teach a child how to lie. You don't have to teach them how to spin a story. They already know how to lie, okay? Uh, it's something that's, that's born into them. And being able to uh, go to heaven on your own or work your way there is, not, is not, it's not possible by yourself. Only hell awaits you. And in hell, it's eternal fire where the worm never stops eating. The fires never quenched. It's a horrible place. And all those that reject Jesus Christ go there, and it's a real place. Uh, so is heaven. But God, but God, made a way for all men to be saved who would turn and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And He'd done that through sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin. And, and, and He lived a perfect, sinless life, a life that none of us ever could. And He, and he took every step to Calvary, to the mountain where he would, he would, or to the hill where He would have His cross put down in the ground, and He would hang on it for those hours. He took every step of the way there in obedience to God. And he took whips and chains and beatings for who? For you, for you, and for you, for me. That he would save your soul if you would turn and and confess. The word says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I believe that. So if God's drawing you tonight, I I invite you guys to come and come and talk to us. If you you, you need to be saved, we want to help you walk through that, okay? But it's this. This is how you're saved. When you repent from your sins. And you believe in that Christ that I told you about. That he ascended to the right hand of the Father after his resurrection. After three days, after he died on the cross, after three days, he did not stay dead. He rose again, okay? He's not dead. Um, um, Dalai Lama, Muhammad, all those other prophets, um, uh, the Buddhists, all, that, all of them, guess where they're at? They're dead. But Jesus Christ is alive. He's risen. He's at the right hand of the Father where all authority has been given to him. Under heaven and on earth. You put your faith in him and he can save you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Sometimes that's all I can get out. And I pray, God, that you would motivate these men and these women tonight to go out and share the gospel.